Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. It is Joan Esposito's show, live, local, and progressive. I am Tory Ryder, in for Joan, a full board of things to talk about today. And you're going to want to join us either by phone or by text 773-763-WCPT. That is 773-763-9278. If you are where you can't call and you can't talk, that's what texting is for, right? Everybody knows that. So do that. If you want to have some input in the conversation today, we expect that Joan will be back next week. Um, we're not sure of the date yet, but we're, you know, fingers crossed, everybody, that she'll get back here real soon. And I know and I know that you miss her. So um, if you just want to text and say, I miss Joan, I hate Tori. That's OK. I've got very thick skin. Uh, not as thick, not as thick, though, as uh, the, the muskage will have to have. Did you see and have you heard and what would it take? Those are my questions for you right now. Did you see that Elon Musk stripped a number of legit journalists of their Twitter platform? And this, by the way, is the thing that I found most useful about Twitter was when legit reporters could add facts to the story or leads they were following in real time. But if they're gone, what do we have? We have the crazy people in Marin County that posted that insane and heinous uh, lie about Nancy Pelosi's husband that Elon Musk retweeted. That's what you're going to have. It's going to be one huge, stinking, epic times. That's what it's going to be. It's going to be the slimiest, lyingest, I'm searching for words I can say on your radio. Um, you'll, you'll, you know what it's going to be once he gets rid of the CNNs and the Washington Posts and all the tech reporters. They're just he. I think he's gone a little nuts. Do you remember the fairy tale of Rumpelstiltskin? Do you remember that's the one where the princess had to spin straw into gold, and and she would be allowed out. Of her prison, if she could name, if she could think of the name of the elf who was keeping her prisoner. And when she did name him, he got so crazy that he stomped his way right through the floor and into the middle of the earth. That's the short retelling. I I think of Elon Musk right now as sort of a Rumpelstiltskin character. Is he a Tesla genius? Well, yes. Is he a space rocket launcher? Well, well, yes. Is he massacring animals unnecessarily in his laboratory in order to achieve some kind of neurological breakthrough? Possibly. How about the boring project where he just wants to make a tunnel to, I don't know, wherever Ron Stiltskin ended up? Maybe. Is he nuts? <laughs> In my opinion only, absolutely 100%. He's lost, in my opinion, his grip. And, by the way, I think he's also losing business in his money-making enterprises. Which is mostly, if I understand the business pages correctly, Tesla. 
So two questions. What would it take for you to move over to some other platform? What, and for that matter, what do you use your Twitter for? And could you replace it easily with something else? Could you do that? Could you manage without your Twitter? What would it take? And if you buy things for ethical reasons or avoid buying them for ethical reasons, has Mr. Musk now positioned himself as such an enemy of free speech and fomenter of supremacy memes and tropes and stories that you would avoid buying anything he's selling? Okay, let me just say that if, heaven forbid, I had a spinal injury and Elon Musk's company had the cure for that, I just want to stipulate right now that he could murder kittens on the primetime news. I would still want my spine reattached. But other than that, if I don't and other people don't need it for their actual physical health and well-being, I'd skip it. And I say this as someone who's really been scrimping and saving and hoping that I would be able to buy an electric vehicle. And, of course, the one I test drove first was Tesla. It was American-made, something you could really be proud of, made in the Bay Area where I used to live. I could drive right by the factory. We moved it to Texas, friendlier to him and his politics. Then started threatening people who didn't want to move. Then started threatening people who wouldn't go back to work. Then spent, what was it, $44 billion, some crazy number of dollars on Twitter. And all in the name of free speech, which he is now actively eradicating as quickly as he possibly can. And if you've not been following the story, if you've not been following the story, his alleged impetus for all of this was a guy who... Using public records, because we still have public records, something that actual real-life journalists know how to track down and spend lots and lots of person hours investigating, following, sorting. Your usual host, Ms. Joan Esposito, would be well able to tell you what it takes to report out a story. As my friend and podcast partner, who was an editor and reporter at United Press International when they were a real going concern for decades, used to say, we were trained that if someone tells you your mother loves you, check it out. Actually, I think I'm misquoting her. If your mother says she loves you, check it out. So, so these real reporters used public data of Elon Musk's private planes, that's plural. Not clear whether he owns them all or leases them. That information's probably out there. I don't care. Probably doesn't matter to you either. Does he own the private plane or just lease it? I mean, if you have a leased car, does it matter to you? Except at the point where you have the mileage and have to turn it in? No, it doesn't. So, this guy who's interested in private aviation, started the, I think it's called Musk Jet Twitter feed, where he just, he tracked Elon Musk's planes around the country. And according to Elon Musk, people started showing up and and chasing his children in cars. Now, we have no proof of this, no way of corroborating it. And I have to say that Elon Musk's reliability score is not very high with me right now. Probably not with you. If Elon Musk said something, 
for sure now you check it out. I mean, he's always shaded the truth a little bit. He did that tech thing where you, you know, you promise you'll be able to deliver X number of cars and then maybe you can't deliver X number of cars. But not being able to give somebody their new Tesla is not the same as lying about why you're taking legitimate journalists off Twitter. Or even if, heaven forbid, even if, heaven forbid, somebody did follow these innocent kids around. The kind of stuff that Elon Musk is fomenting causes all kinds of other people to be followed around and worse and much worse. So what would it take for you to leave Twitter if you're on it? And by the way, can I just say that I tried yesterday? I set up a Mastodon account on my desktop and then I thought, okay, well, I'll set it up on my on my phone. I'm still working on that. I would say I've put in a good two hours. I had to finally go back to my desktop and go online and see how you do that because it's not obvious because apparently it's one from column A and one from column B and choose your dessert option and I'm still working on it. So, you know, if you if you want to give me a poor baby that's would be much appreciated right now as we go into hour number three of trying to escape Elon Musk's Twitter. Phone number again, 773-763-WCPT. My name is Turi, and yes, I am still on Twitter at Turi Ryder. That's T-U-R-I-R-Y-D-E-R. So while I'm there, feel free to join me. You can find me on other socials too, on Facebook, um, online. I'm around. I'm not hard to find, really. Um, yeah, I think that's how that's that's what you need to know to find me. Let's begin with Roosevelt. Hello, welcome to WCPT John Esposito's show. Hi, Jerry. Hey, happy holidays to you and yours. Thank you, and to you, whatever you're celebrating. I hope it's festive. Navidad. And you called because you wanted to talk. Now, connect this this to the Trump supporters. Is my understanding you want to talk to me about Trump supporters? Absolutely. I'll give you an example. Yesterday, only because I was on my bike. Otherwise, I would have been applauding you. <laughs> don't don't applaud while you're riding your bike. Thank you for that. Yeah, yeah. So, so yesterday you had a call in. And kudos to you. I believe the guy's name is Peter. Let's not get into... Oh, wait, 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 wait. Let's just not get... It doesn't matter. What, what was the point? The point is this. Is they take the same garbage that they hear on Fox News and try to dump it on Joan's show when she's not there. That's the point. And you snuffed them them out. Well, I'm a good snuffer. I'm a sniffer and a snuffer. And and thank you for calling, Roosevelt. And please ride safely. Actually, later on in the show, we're going to hear from um, a Chicago alderman who's working really hard to improve bike safety in the city. So, uh, and I know... That that's a topic that's close to Patty Vasquez's heart, too. So you're going to get some info on that. Because it's not a safe place. I've got a spouse who rides everywhere all winter. I've got a kid who rides everywhere when he's here. And he lives in Toronto and he rides there in the middle of winter. So that'll be interesting. Um, it is also kind of fascinating if you're trying to avoid buying an Elon Muskage product what your options are. Have you been doing any research? Because I've been doing my research. My goal was to save enough pennies to buy 
an American-built electric vehicle built by union labor. Almost impossible right now, but there is a company building cars. I won't name them because we don't need this to be a big commercial for them. But, well, if they want to buy a commercial, they're free to do it. But they are building um, EVs downstate. And interestingly, they're not yet union, but there's an effort to organize them. And guess what they're organizing around? Guess what that that fulcrum is around which they're building their organizing effort? Can you guess? It's what many people find is the reason they want to organize in a factory setting. It's safety, which is a lot of what's been behind the Amazon organizing effort. And I don't have the hard data on this, but from all the news that I take in, I think really the big issues for organizing right now are safety, health care, and schedules that permit you to have a family life. I mean, those are the three core issues. And when you stop to think about it, it's your body, it's your body, it's your kids. So, of course, those are the most important things. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on whether you are going to avoid any Musk products or dump your Twitter account and what that's going to look like for you. We are the Joan Esposito Show, Tory Writer sitting in for Joan, live local and progressive. The Big Picture with Edwin Eisentrap, Saturdays at 1 p.m. He said, I'm not going to give up trying to get political bias out of the FBI. I'm not going to give up on my own investigation of Hunter Biden and the Bidens. We know the facts and we follow the money. What facts, what money, what's he talking about, and why, when Iowans actually have challenges in their lives, why this fantasy? The Big Picture with Edwin Eisentrap, Saturdays at 1 p.m. Because facts matter. You're listening to WCPT 820. This is Joan Esposito. Live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Tory writer in for Joan Esposito. Joan's expected back next week. You can join me here at WCPT. We are Chicago's Progressive Talk 763-WCPT in the 773 area code. Thanks for your texts. Let's read a couple of them. We've been talking about whether you would still support Mr. Musk in all his manufacturing endeavors, um, considering the fact that he booted a bunch of legit journalists off Twitter last night just for reporting some things that were actually factual, including where his private plane is going. Uh, Would you take it out on him financially? Larry writes to us, uh, my next car will not be a Tesla. It'll be a Chevy Bolt EV. No Tesla solar roof or batteries for my next net zero house. Yeah, I'm thinking the same. We're on the same electronic page there, Larry, in Reeling. Also, he wants to add about the private plane situation. Lots of rich people own their planes for a range of reasons. One reason is ego, to brag that they own their plane. Uh, Yeah, it's true. If you own a boat, for example, you get to write your name right in big fat letters across the back, the side. You know, people can see it. You could probably, you could probably 
um, captain your boat way out from shore, but so much more ego when you just kind of coast along the shoreline there with your big stern signage for sure. Lots of rich people on their planes, he writes. And then the four owners of the company I worked for all had partial ownership in planes. Yes, that's a that's a thing. I've worked for people who had planes. I got nothing against it. Sometimes you need it. I mean, really, sometimes you do. If you have, for example, a radio station with a network of smaller stations that are in more remote areas. I worked for a company where they had some in the big cities and some that were affiliated in smaller towns. And there was just, you would spend your whole corporate life driving if you didn't have a plane to get you from point A to point B. So, makes sense. But... Where your plane goes is public information. And to punish people for putting public information out there, especially, I want to add this. I want to add that it's it's not insignificant that Mr. Musk, I love calling him Mr. Musk. It has such a nice sock puppety ring to it. And now we're going to spend some time with our favorite friend, Mr. Musk. Hi, Mr. Musk. Hi, everybody. Doesn't it? Doesn't doesn't it just sound great, Mr. Musk? Hi, everybody. I just got off my private plane. Lady B is going to freak. She's never heard me do that before. She's. I, I'm glad she's wearing a mask because I think stuff's about to start shooting out like milk in the school cafeteria. Things things you didn't know I could do. Um, but yeah, he he um, he he can't just. Well, he can. But what's going to be the consequence of trying to punish people for doing what they can legitimately do when he's saying, we may not be paying you guys your rightfully entitled severance, you people who didn't want to go hardcore, you people who don't want to sleep in the Tesla building in San Francisco, where, by the way, I haven't paid my rent lately. Yeah, go ahead and tell people how hard their lives have to be and then get on your private plane and fly away. That's not a good look, is it? No. Not a good look at all. Um, I'm getting recommendations for other other um, electric cars. Now, I'm, st- I'm sticking with the union, as the old song goes. I'm trying. I do know that the um, there's one that's built in Mexico with UAW labor, but still, I'm holding out. Also, because I still don't have the money. You know, it's kind of... It's kind of nice to take the high road when the ancient vehicle, the ancient mommy van is still plugging along. I'm not desperate yet. Not yet. Let's go to, um, wait, do I have to? Yes, I do. I can talk to George on the south side. Hi, George. Welcome. You're on WCPT, Joan Esposito's show. Thank you, Tori. Um, I may have misunderstood what you said earlier, but I I thought you said that uh, you couldn't find an electric car that's built by union labor? Well, there are a couple, but I think one of them is like a Cadillac or Lincoln, and that's a little fancy for me. Uh, I want an American-built union labor EV. Well, I believe that the uh, the new electric Mustang is American-built uh, by Ford union labor. Well, that's the one I had my eye on, but guess what? Unless they've changed something, it's it's made by UAW labor in Mexico. That's exactly the car I was referring to. Well, what about the uh, Chevy Volt? Isn't that made in America by union? I think that may be, and that it's a little small for me. <laughs> 
But you know what? I mean, look, we, we could do, is it, is it your stuff or is it you? With me, it's the combo. I like to stretch out and my, my car is basically an extension of my purse. It's 10 times as big as I need it to be just because I like to root around in there for anything I might need. You, you? Why, why do you want a big one? Um, you should pardon well, the expression. I'm, I'm just kind of a big guy. What can I tell you? Oh, there you go. Well, there's nothing wrong with that. Nothing yeah. wrong with that at all. We make them big here in America. We supersize things. Thanks for calling, George. Glad to speak with you. We are um, just moments away from getting an update on the latest in the sentencing um, of the I, I guess we could say they were boogaloo movement, white supremacy, race war promoters who went after uh, Governor R- Whitmer. And uh, we've got some more details on that. And we will shortly be joined by a woman who has been digging down deep into the story for the Detroit News, which is, of course, as you know, um, pretty much where that all has been unfolding. <laughs> Excuse me. I think I push the button so that I don't cough in your ear and then I cough in your ear. I don't know how I'm doing that. I must be magic. Also coming up today, um, as mentioned, we're going to talk about some of the issues that are uh, under discussion in the Chicago City Council with Matt Martin of the 47th Ward. Uh, we're going to talk. I really want to hear um, a little bit more about this, how the raise in interest rates is affecting moderate, low, first-time home buyers here in Chicago. All of that is on the way. Live, local, and progressive WCPT. Your long drive home just got even easier. Driving it home with Patty Vasquez. Now weeknights from 5 to 7 p.m. on WCPT 820. This is Joan Esposito. Live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. We are the Joan Esposito Show. I'm Turi. That's T-U-R-I, writer. Like the truck, you can find me all over the internet. Just put that name in there. I'm holding down Joan's show. She's a little under the weather. She's expected back next week for Live Local and Progressive. And just to keep it live and local and progressive, here I am keeping Joan's seat toasty. So, the latest on the sentencing, there's still one to go. Following the story of the white supremacist Boogaloo and disgracing the name of the poor Michigan Wolverine by making his name into a or its name into a white supremacist moniker, um, covering this whole story for the Detroit News is an expert on these things, Kara Berg. Is it Kara or Kara? I want to make sure I get that right. Kara. Okay, thank you. Kara, thanks for all your coverage. I appreciate it. I was really interesting to read your story and what's been um, taking our focus here is this whole idea that they are now in an illegal gang. How does that play out in Michigan? I know in Chicago, when uh, you are um, convicted or uh, prosecuted for a gang-related crime, they can add on what they call gang enhancements. Could you speak to that a little bit and the sentencing? and also mentioned that the the one guy who has not yet been sentenced, Croft, I believe his name is? Yeah, there's actually two guys who haven't been sentenced yet, uh, Adam Fox and Barry Croft. Those are the two ringleaders of the plot. They're the ones being sentenced in federal court, and that'll be the week after Christmas. Uh, As for gang membership in Michigan, it functioned as a separate charge. So the jury convicted all three men on the gang membership charge. 
Uh, the Michigan statute basically says if a person who's an associate or a member of a gang, if they commit a felony or attempt to commit a felony, the person is guilty of um, being a part of a gang. And this can be a punishment up to 20 years. And it can also be consecutive, which is unusual for Michigan. Uh, most of our sentences run concurrently to each other. So it so sounds like the, the gang enhancement essentially boils down to, guess what? You don't get to knock this off your sentence while you're serving your other time. You have to add this. It, it's essentially there, similar to what it is here. Yes, it works similar to like a, a gun enhancement that we have where that one's always mandatory um, consecutive. How recently did this, um, can, is this the first time that um, the gang enhancement or the, the gang, uh, illegal gang activity sentence has been uh, used for white gang members? Is this new for Michigan? I don't know about that. I know it's not overly common. None of these charges used in this case were overly common except for the felony firearm. Um, but this is a pretty novel case. Yeah, I, would, I mean, everything about it, I, I as um, a progressive and hopeful, hopefully anti-racist, um, I'm really excited to see that white gangs are being treated or may become treated in the same way that gangs that are affiliated in people's minds with people of color are. are and it would be nice if we applied that same kind of standard to everybody if we're going to apply it at all. Um, it was interesting when you reported that the prosecutor said, don't believe these guys for a minute that they've changed their views. This is who they are at their core. Um, the defendants, of course, said, no, 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 they've changed. You know, they, they, they pounded their breasts. They wept. They apologized. Did you, as a reporter, get a sense of whether any of them have continued to participate in any of the supremacist, violent, conspiratorial activities with which they were charged? I mean, is there any evidence that they persist with this? Social networks, no, anything? There's no evidence that they've persisted with any of that. That would have been a violation of their bond conditions. Uh, so if the court had found out about that, they would have been taken into custody pretrial. Oh, very interesting. See, I'm learning so much from you. Um it was interesting also to hear um, that the governor made a video statement. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So in Michigan, uh, the Crime Victims' Rights Act guarantees that the victim of a crime is able to give a victim impact statement at sentencing. Um, and the defense attorneys tried to get this video thrown out because they said, well, these are victimless crimes. Like, it's not, she's not a direct victim. Um, and she shouldn't be able to give a victim impact statement. But the judge said that prosecutors were able to play this video that she had recorded. Um, and she basically was talking about how things had changed for her since since the kidnapping plot came out. She said she always scanned the crowd now, uh, thought about the last thing she said before she leaves the conversation. Um, and she worries about the safety of her loved ones, staff members, and the uh, police officers on her security staff. Have they changed her security uh, detail at all um, to make sure that she's getting extra protection? Or is that still as it was? Is she still fairly? I mean, in my experience of her from a neighboring state, she's been pretty accessible in community meetings and public settings. Has that changed for the governor at all? 
she's still pretty accessible, um, but there definitely has been enhanced security, especially around her house. Oh, yeah. I could imagine. And um, just full disclosure here, I was tracked by the white Aryan resistance when I did talk radio in Portland. It's a very scary thing. It's really it's a it. I remember calling my ex-boyfriend who was military and asking, what's the best way to start my car if I think there might be a bomb under it? And I'm thinking to myself as I'm making this call, what? <laughs> what am I doing asking this question? But by the way, God forbid, start your car with the doors open. This is a piece of information I wish I'd never come by ever in my life. So are you getting a sense that the... Um, citizenry of Michigan, which just went through this election and, and a blue sweep of all the uh, elected offices, virtually all of them. Are you getting a sense that this is what people wanted? How engaged was the, the Michigan population in general with this ongoing case still going on? Uh, I think people are definitely interested in it, um, but probably less so as the case has gone on. It was huge news when it first came out, but... Like any news story, the more you report on it, the more people kind of tune out. But people people are definitely interested in it. It's not every day that something like this happens. Were people surprised? I mean, from elsewhere, we've heard that, that Michigan was sort of the, a cradle of the white supremacist movement, the, the, the fertilization point for the Midwest for the most part. Um, you know, Idaho gets the bad rap in Southern California out West. And here, uh, for those of us not in Michigan, it was like, oh, Michigan, that's where all those crazy militia people are. Was was that something that Michiganders felt about themselves? Like, holy smokes, we've got this terrible reputation as as a incubation spot for white supremacists? Or, or was this news to most people there? Uh, I think it was news to a lot of people there. People, I mean, people definitely knew that there were militias around. But there's a difference between knowing that they exist and seeing them come to protests at the Capitol and having it come out that there were people coming up with a plot like this. Was As you followed the trial, what were some of the things that really stuck out in your mind? Because, you know, you report, so it takes a lot to really, I would imagine, make you sit up and go, well, well, that's novel. Were there any moments for you where you thought, really unbelievable stuff? Um, a lot of what I heard in this trial especially had already been brought out in the federal trial. I don't think there was very much new information coming out. Um, it was definitely interesting to see just how much access um, the confidential informants and the FBI had to everyone who was in the group. Um, it, it was definitely interesting to see some of those Facebook posts and social media posts and just how openly uh, people were speaking. Now, that's I'm glad you brought that up because I almost forgot to ask you. In the first couple of trials, there was real concern that um, some of these people wouldn't have done or said or acted as they did had it not been for federal informants who were sort of egging them on. Um, Did that come up in this trial as well? Not in the trial, no. This um, the judges had already ruled, I don't remember if it was in this one, but I know in the Antrim County case, the judge already ruled that entrapment wasn't a valid defense, and I believe it was the same in this case. I see. They weren't allowed to bring that up at trial at all. And what, just for those who didn't follow closely, 
Can you recap for us what some of the things that were alleged to be entrapment involved? What what were these informants saying or doing or how were they behaving that that caused um, in the earlier trials ca- caused this this protest of entrapment to come up? The biggest issue was with the FBI confidential informant, Dan. Uh, the defense attorneys were saying that he was far too involved in the making of the plot and moving forward with the plot and putting his ideas out there. Uh, they were saying that he was the one who actually pushed people into orchestrating this. But prosecutors really pushed back on that. And they had they showed some evidence that was talking about, like, OK, these guys had these beliefs before Dan even came into the picture before he even started interacting with the group. And was this mostly happening on social network? And if so, which channels were they using for this stuff? They started off on Facebook. There was a Facebook group, which is how they recruited some people. And then they used a, um, I don't remember the name of the encrypted chatting app. It might have been Wire. Uh, But they used an encrypted chat app to have most of the other conversations. And they talked a lot on Facebook Messenger as well. Oh, Facebook Messenger, which, of course, doesn't really belong to you (laughs) when you put your messages out there. Um, At least that is what, as a person in the media, I've I've been given to understand. It belongs to you until it doesn't. Um, Mm -hmm. Yes. Could could you um, stick with us for a moment? I want to ask you about whether the media has um, encountered any fallout from any of this where you are. So if you would just hold on, uh, Ms. Berg, she is the reporter covering for the Detroit News, the series of trials of the Boogaloo, Boogaloo, I can't even say it. Let's just call them the the Wolverine, whatever they were called, um, the white supremacist gang in Michigan that uh, is increasingly um, in increasing numbers making their way to prison. Ta-da. More in a moment. It's Joan Esposito's show live local and progressive on WCPT. WCPT 820, Chicago's progressive talk where facts matter. Attention, everyone. Don't turn that dial. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. Tory writer in for Joan. Joan's expected back next week, so I am keeping her seat warm. Joining me, Kara Berg from the Detroit News. Um, she's been covering the story of the white militia, uh, the kidnapping plot against Michigan Governor Whitmer. And they just had another batch of sentencing yesterday and two more to go, she tells us. Um, thanks for holding on. Kara, can you tell me... Um, whether the media have taken any fallout from this. Have you or any of your associates felt um, that your safety is is in any way changed or compromised? Um, I, I've only been covering this trial and a little bit of the federal trial. We've had another reporter on this case as well, Rob Snell. Uh, but I have not experienced any fallout from this case. And your colleague? I don't believe he has either. I'm glad to hear that because one of the things that happens here is they go after the reporters. I've seen it more than once, and it's it's really frightening. Um, So you don't feel like you have to take any particular additional measures beyond what you currently do to protect yourself and your safety? 
No, I don't feel that I do. I'm glad to hear that. Any other interesting notes that we should be aware of since we're not in Michigan about what's coming down the road and also about the way that they planned the charging and trials of these particular defendants, the strategy that's involved? How's that playing out and what's coming up? Um, Well, they definitely wanted to have the federal trials first. Um, They wanted to see how the ringleaders played out before doing any of the state cases. So the federal sentencings are coming up the week after Christmas for ringleaders Adam Fox and Barry Croft. And there are still five more state cases coming up in Antrim County. Those were just bound over to circuit court to stand trial after a judge determined there was enough evidence for the case to stand trial. So are these coming up? I'm sorry. Are these the outer ring people and they went for the main actual plotters first and then they kind of worked their way out? Or are they starting from the outside and working their way in, if you follow my... The main main ones were tried first, the main two ringleaders. And then there were a couple people who pleaded guilty and two who were acquitted in federal court. The Jackson County trio were more on the outskirts. But the five in Antrim County were part of the like surveillance of Whitmer's summer cottage, um, actually going to look and see, like, oh, where would be the best place to put a bomb? Where can we park? Do all of those things. So that's what prosecutors allege they, um, their role in this was. So there's still definitely some information to come out. And I understand that a couple of the um, offenders who who cooperated got their sentences lightened. What were some of the things that they contributed to the convictions of their co-conspirators that enabled the judge and the the prosecutors to feel like, okay, you deserve a lighter sentence now? Uh, They they were the ones who flipped and started talking to talking to the um, to the feds and to the attorney general's office. Um, Ty Garbin was somebody who testified and um, he was able to kind of lead to the convictions there. And and anyone who does a plea deal is going to get a lighter sentence anyways. Well, yes, I will take that into response. I guess I'm going for something. I'm going for something more concrete here. I mean, did he supply, for example, um, correspondence or did he supply literally receipts for weapons or bomb making material? What were the kinds of things that he supplied when he began helping the prosecution? I think his main interest was testimony. Um, It was another person who was able to corroborate what the confidential informants were talking about. I see. So nobody was, it wasn't a matter of saying, no, they'd already bought these supplies ahead of time before the confidential informant. There was, nobody was supplying actual hard physical evidence saying, no, they stashed their guns at my place. None of that. No. I, I mean, everyone had a lot of guns, but they were their own guns. In a lot of cases, they were legal guns. There were no bomb making supplies. Um, Purchased. So now the the last question for you is, is there an effort to connect this group um, and use these convictions in building cases elsewhere against other white supremacy gangs that you know of? Uh, I don't know of that. No. And the, the Wolverine Watchmen were a lot more anti-government than white supremacists. Anti-government was their, their biggest focus. 
It was interesting that um, I'm glad you mentioned that because one of the the things that you quoted in your article was one of the um, convicted men saying, you know, I was sort of lost without the army. And it's amazing. I don't know if you have if you want to speak to the emotional impact of that, but the idea that our own military, if they lose their sense of esprit de corps, go looking for a violent anti-government corps, that kind of 180 is just astonishing to me that one minute you're there to defend the government and the next minute, you know, you want to destroy it. I don't quite understand how you get from point A to point B. Was that explained at all to in, in the in the case? Uh, no, that really wasn't talked about. It's a mystery to me anyway. I, don't, I mean, I realize that we can't ask you to get out my favorite tool, which is the speculator. But it, it is kind of remarkable that there's a lot of that these days where one minute you're you are the establishment and the next minute you want to quite literally, in some cases, blow it up. Thank you so much for spending time with us. I really appreciate it. I know this is the middle of your reporting day and I hope you remain safe and productive for the Detroit News. Thanks so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. That's Kara Berg. She is a reporter for the Detroit News. She covered uh, the story of the um, gang of, okay, I'll give you their names since I believe they are no more. The Wolverine Watchmen. Nicely alliterative and now defunct, I believe. Yeah, as they should be. It was interesting to to me as I watched this case unfold. And um, maybe you live in a place where uh, you have noticed a rise in um, organization of white supremacy, anti-government, where you see that kind of thing, at least where you used to see it in, in my neighborhood was not just online, but there would be people flyering the neighborhood or putting up signs in the neighborhood. And of course, all the neighbors would take it down. Um, but there's still quite a bit of that organizing going on. And another radio station, which I will not name here because they're not us, uh, did a very in-depth series of the white supremacy movement and its roots in Chicago. And the boost that it got from Oprah Winfrey many, many years ago, which she regards as one of the biggest mistakes she ever made. I mean, there, there's this idea that if you put all these ideas out in the sunlight like mold, they will die. But what's scary and sad right now is if you put a lot of these ideas out in the sunlight, there's an increasing number of people who go, hey, good idea. I'd like that. And that's that's kind of scary. Speaking of scary ideas, I just have to add this. Have you seen, did you hear about the Donald Trump NFT token, Donald Trump playing cards, Donald Trump, if you don't know, it's a non-fungible token. What is that? It's a picture that there's only one of that's electronic. That's the best way I could understand it. And they're selling them online with Donald Trump as a superhero. And the price, okay, try not to, try really, make sure you have nothing in your mouth right now because you will spit it across your car or desk. Ready? About 230 bucks for one of these I don't know. You can only pay for them, I think, with cryptocurrency. That's how real they are. But the money you pay for them is good old American dollars. 
you have to buy the token to buy the token, I believe is how that works. And so he portrayed himself in these NFTs as a superhero. And according to um, Coindesk, which tracks this sort of thing, these digital trading cards that he issued sold out early Friday, just one day after they came out. And what was interesting, I mentioned this to our beautiful Lady B here, and she said, well, she didn't, She started laughing. And she said, people pay real money for this. Um, I said, yeah, and I think they're not particularly wealthy people necessarily. That's who this would mean something to. And if you don't mind me quoting you here, Lady B, she said, oh, I feel so bad for them. And then the the most evil part of me came out and said, don't feel bad for them. They're suckers. Do not feel bad for suckers. Do not feel bad for people who spend their disposable income on MAGA hats and racist MAGA. Don't feel bad for them. Here's a dirty little secret about some of the paraphernalia. We have a friend whose kid and his partner are in the business of selling political swag. They don't care the party. They don't care. It's a business. So you buy yourself some of that right wing swag. You may be putting money right into the pockets of a left wing voter. Just know that when you if you've got, you know, if you're about to go for the holiday to visit Uncle Fred and Uncle Fred's going to be there with his big old MAGA hat on and his his uh, what is it? Brandon, let's go Brandon T-shirt. Just just think to yourself, I could really scream and yell about Uncle Fred, but probably the people making this stuff are slave laborers in China and a bunch of college kids out of their dorms. That's who's selling it. But the NFTs, that, I believe, is going straight to the Donald. That's his. There's one of him standing in front of the Statue of Liberty holding a torch. And as of the writing of this story, which was this morning at about 8.30, that was, I believe, selling for Ethereum money. Uh, the equivalent of $24,000. You can't, you can't make this up. <laughs> Somewhere there is somebody, and my guess is it's not Steve Bannon and it's not Alex Jones. It's some poor sod who's behind on his child support. That's who I feel. That's who you feel sorry for. You feel sorry for the kids. Feel sorry for Elon Musk's kids. Feel sorrier for these people buying Donald Trump NFT kids. Because, you know, Elon Musk's kids are still going to get braces. But if you're if you're poor, if your poor, credulous, naive, gullible parent is buying Donald Trump NFTs, my guess is you're going to have some crooked teeth. My guess is you're not going on that school field trip. Unless it's maybe to a rifle range. That's my guess. I I can't prove it. Can't prove it. But my thought is that perhaps the people buying these Donald Trump NFTs, I don't want to say that they're stupid because they're not necessarily stupid. They're just... They're just open to believing what they've joined a religion. It's the same people who send all their money to, to pastors who believe that if you send them all your all, all your money, you'll have more money. 
And I guess these are just people who never did arithmetic in school, that if you have five and you send all five to pastor so-and-so, now you really have zero. If you have $230 worth of Ethereum and you buy a Donald Trump NFT for $230 worth of Ethereum, now you have $0 worth of Ethereum and a totally useless Donald Trump trading card. But you know what would be kind of fun, Lady B? We could make our own Donald Trump trading cards and just, you know, put them on recycled paper here and see what people would pay for those. I know some friends who are pretty good artists. I might be able to pay for my kids last year of university. There's a thought. You know, this is America. We figure out how to make money where we can. It's the Joan Esposito Show, live, local and progressive on WCPT. I'm Tory Ryder in for Joan. This is WCPT 820. Listen in Chicago on 820 AM or stream us live on WCPT820.com. The TuneIn Radio app or tell Alexa or Google to play WCPT. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. The reason that I listen to you from the infamous other side, you will call a spade a spade, and if it's indefensible, you will not defend it. And you know what? I can respect that. I'm telling you, CPT 820. Just about 304, it's Joan Esposito's show, live, local, and progressive. I am Turi with you, Ryder, like the truck, in for Joan. Uh, Joan should be back sometime next week. She's still not 100%, but we're counting on her for some time next week. And you will be in capable hands in any case. We were interested around here, those of us, there are a few of us, who are homeowners. And I think the rest of the people around here may be aspiring homeowners. I could be wrong about that. Not everybody wants to own their own home. But interest rates went up a couple of days ago. And the first thing that crossed my mind was... What's going to happen to the people who are just struggling to get it together, to get a mortgage and a home, maybe working people, maybe lower income people? How are they going to manage? How are they going to get a mortgage? How are they going to afford a mortgage? What is there to help them and stabilize their chances of getting into a home of their own? So we reached out and are joined by Ms. Tiffany Smith. She's the Associate Director of Southside Strategies for the Neighborhood Housing Services of Chicago. Uh, thank you for joining us, Ms. Smith. It's good to have you. I'm, I'm trying to click. I'm not seeing her. Have I lost her? Oh, there she is. I'm here. Hi. Oh, you're here. Good. Thank goodness for that. I mean, it's one thing to lose your mortgage. It's another thing to lose your guest. Hi. <laughs> Both not the optimal situation. <laughs> neither neither are good. Although, frankly, as much as you seem charming, I think it's more, more traumatic for people to lose their chance at a mortgage. When you saw, and, and I'm assuming you've been watching what the Fed's been doing, what are your thoughts as you see this elevated interest rate time after meeting after meeting? How, how are you feeling about that? And in the real world, what does that look like to you in terms of its impact on prospective homeowners? Well, first and foremost, Neighborhood Housing Services of Chicago, we are there for all of our folks that are looking to become homeowners. I want to just make sure everyone understands homeownership is still possible, even in this inflationary period. So just a couple of things we're going to need to do um, to make that more of a reality for those who are looking to become homeowners. Yes, it is a little disconcerting <laughs> um, to see that savings that folks have put away thinking, OK, this is going to be enough to get me in the door. 
this is going to be a reasonable monthly mortgage payment that I can afford. Um, and to see the impact on each of those um, increases in the interest rate and what that does and how much home it chip, chips away uh, from those new home buyers is, yes, disconcerting. Is there what a, I will say, though. Yes. Go ahead. I, I was going to ask, is there a particular profile of a f- household or family or individual who is calling up your group and going, well, I'm panicked now. What do I do? Who Who's getting hit by this the hardest? Well, look, everyone is getting hit by this. However, yes, our residents are, who are looking to be homeowners who are already on the cusp, right? So lots of folks that are in our black and brown communities, those that are on the south and west sides of Chicago, which, you know, have been overlooked for so long. Um, and we're already having trouble or challenges achieving homeownership by just being approved from a mortgage who have experienced trauma um, through the mortgage lending process prior. It's alarming. And so... What I was going to say is the first order of business, right, for anyone, if you're thinking about becoming a homeowner, is don't go look at houses first, right? I need you to stop and meet with a HUD-certified housing counselor. Ah. And the reason I'm telling people that, it's super important right now in this inflationary period because you want to meet with that homeownership counselor so that you can, all cards on the table, understand your buying position, not just from a budget, but where you are with your credit and if there's some things we need to do um, to prepare you so that you're in a better bargaining position, then we need to do that in advance of you going out there and having those conversations with those lenders. And definitely before you start looking at properties, it is the worst feeling in the world to find something that you think is your dream home and find out it is without, you know, outside of your reach. I'll tell you what's worse. You want to know what's worse? Go ahead. What's worse is what's worse was in the old environment where you just buy it without an inspection and you'd sink all your money into it and you'd walk, you'd open up your front door and the front door would come off in your hand and it was downhill all the way from there. And a lot of people were doing that. So I suppose if you have to find a silver lining for this, it's exactly what you were saying. People have to stop. They have to do their homework first. They have to research before they go look. And with all of that, it also gives you time, I would imagine, when you meet with people to say, are you willing to look at a place where you would be putting in some sweat equity? Is that a conversation you have with new prospective buyers? Curry, you are in my brain. That was going to be my next point, which is, look, after you've met with your HUD-certified homeownership counselor, you are going to know what budget you have to work with. And that's really going to inform how creative you have to be in your approach to first-time homeownership. Um, and even if it's not your first time buying, right, if you're buying, uh, moving into a different type of property, really how creative do we have to be? There are opportunities to get purchase rehabs, right, where you do need to put in a, li- a little more sweat equity. Or you look at neighborhoods that are what we call in micro market recovery zones. Oh, Those areas- that's an interesting. I've I've always bought in what we politely called um, transitional neighborhoods, which in, in the case of my house means that I'm and I don't. I am not making a joke about this. I've been vibrating with upset since I came in today. Three people were shot four blocks from my house last night. It's not. It's not Winnetka. That's for sure. So let me let me circle back then to. Um, People who, I mean, I think a lot of parents are being asked to help out and assume some risk. 
And I'm guessing that it does. it's not unusual for parents to take an equity loan to help a, a next generation person buy a house. Do you see people going into riskier situations now because they're desperate to buy something? And do you have to wave a red flag at people and go, no, don't let your parents mortgage their house to help you with this? Or do you say the opposite? Yes, let your parents take a second, take a mortgage so they can help you with this. How does that conversation unfold? So I think there's a different type of profile um, for particularly our markets on the south and west sides in that for some, that's not actually an option, right? Those gifts that we would get from that auntie or that uncle to help with our down payment assistance, that may not be an option. Well, yes, there's been a lot of equity. There's been a lot of equity sucked out particularly for black and brown communities where they've just they've been denuded of what should have been a legacy of wealth over and over and over again. Still, there, you know, there are some of the aunties and some of the hardworking parents with beautiful homes and some nicer neighborhoods of the south and west sides who who want to do this for their kids. No, I would say there are opportunities for those that are looking to purchase their home to look at lenders that are offering more down payment assistance. Look, lenders understand the challenge that these increases and the interest rate are having on their pipeline, right? So they're doing creative things as well on their end, right, which is Uh offering more down payment assistance, Uh right? They're doing rate buy-downs. So when I talk about your first stop should be with a HUD-certified housing counselor, you want to be in the best credit position, the best debt-to-income ratio position, so that you are eligible for some of these programs, right? to get up to $20,000 in down payment assistance, which is very helpful yes. when you're buying in the Chicago market. If you're looking on the south and west side, that can be very impactful and cut down your monthly spend. Can I tell you, you can I tell you my favorite credit? Like what? How did that happen? Story? If you have a second. So yeah, we we that. were when we moved back here, we were looking at buying something and <clears throat> we um we have pretty good credit. We're careful. We, we watch. Mm-hmm. Strangely, the spousal unit, something was wrong with his credit. And we couldn't figure out what, what was this. It turned out that there was this little investment thing that we had bought and we weren't living in it. And between the time that we bought it and the time that we rented it, somebody's name was on the mailbox who wasn't us. And the gas company sent a bill for literally $2. I still remember the number, $2.37. And the bill got returned because our name wasn't on the mailbox. And even though we had an account with the gas company, they didn't send that bill to us. Instead, they trashed the credit rating for the spousal unit for $2.37. And weirdly, it took us a month. And and you can imagine, I'm pretty intrepid. I don't give up. (laughs) It took over a month for me to actually find a human being. I think I had to work through my state uh, legislator to to get them to go, oh, whoops, we're sorry. We'll take that off. So, So sorry about that. But it's important that people have groups that are nonprofits like like yours to to help them with the tools for for exactly what you're talking about, cleaning up whoopses or even, you know, mm-hmm. bad stretches. Let me ask you, what is Chicago and if you know anything about the surrounding communities, what kind of 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 boosts are they putting in place to help people? I know there are neighborhoods where if you want to buy property, there's help. I know if you're a first-time buyer, what are some of the things that no matter what the the Fed does, there's help for you here. 
Right. So when I was referring to creative buying, right, MMRP in the city of Chicago, we call that the micro market recovery program. There are certain neighborhoods within the city that the city of Chicago has said, you know what, we want to focus our efforts in them. And those are those micro market recovery zones. There are down payment assistance up to $15,000 to help first-time homebuyers buy in those communities. And you kind of alluded to um, transitional neighborhoods. Yeah. I don't want people to think that the MMRP zones are, um, you know, high-risk neighborhoods or things of that nature. They're just neighborhoods that maybe have had high vacancies in them or maybe need some upgrades to the properties. Um, And so it's a commitment. We want people who are invested in staying in the properties. There are tenure requirements on those types of down payment assistance. Oh, how long would you how long would you be staying in your property in order to to get that benefit? For example, on the MMRP, you would need to stay there for five years. Okay, well, that's not a lifetime. That's 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 not a lifetime. That's enough time to put your sweat equity in and enjoy having a roof over your head. That's yours where no one can raise your rent. And uh, and get to know your neighbors. Right. We are a city of neighborhoods and it's always so amazing to me how people don't realize once you leave that downtown area, um, that feeling of not knowing your neighbors does dissipate. Um, so, for example, I'm a second generation Chathamite and there are six of us on our block that grew up and either bought homes next to our parents or we bought our parents homes. Wow. That is not unique. It actually is it's more common than people realize. Um, so it gives you time to really dig in and start making those bonds within the community. Uh, the other program I was going to call out is the TIF Purchase Rehab Program, right? That allows people to find a home that's been vacant for 30 days <laughs> and say, you know what? I'm going to work with one of these three approved lenders and buy that home. And the city is actually going to um, do a purchase assistance grant to you for up to 25,000, sorry, 25% of your purchase rehab cost. Right? Wow, that's really something. Need to have, it's huge. And people don't um, really know about it and so really want to get it out there that, look, home ownership is still possible. Well, yes, we're going to have to work at it and we're going to have to be creative and more than likely, you're going to have to put in some sweat. I'm so glad to to be talking to you today and I want you to hold on for a moment because I've got more questions, but you are the antidote to all these news stories going home mortgage interest rates and credit card panic, panic, you'll never, you're going to live under the viaduct if you're not careful. Hold hold on, we'll we'll be back with you. Live, local and progressive, it is Joan Esposito Show. I'm Tori Ryder on WCPT. This is WCPT 820, where facts matter. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. We are expecting Joan back next week. In the meantime, I am Turi. That's spelled T-U-R-I, Ryder, like the truck, in for Joan. You can find me if you want to talk to me or connect with me outside the station on just about all the socials, although I'm plotting to get out of Twitter just as fast as I can figure out how to do it. Um, Working on it, working on it. Speaking of working on it, we are joined, uh, she's still with us, Ms. Tiffany Smith, uh, lifelong Chathamite, she tells us, Associate Director of Southside Strategies for Neighborhood Housing Services of Chicago, with some tips on why you may not need to panic even if the Fed keeps raising interest rates. Ms. Smith, thanks for hanging on. Um, I have someone who has a question for you about interest rates. Yeah, I'm going to connect him with us right now. Dave in... Oh, wait, I gotta push the right button here. 
There are so many. I have too many mice. Dave in San Francisco, I guess you're listening online today. Welcome to WCPT. Well, thanks, Tori and uh, your guest. I, uh, when I studied financial management in college 25 years ago, uh, we learned that 3% was considered a dangerous number and uh, that you should never borrow money over 3%. The Federal Reserve has just jacked interest rates uh, four different times, uh, and it was 0.75 each time, so that is 3% that they jacked it. Well, I'm going to pause you, Dave, and tell you that there is a whole generation of people who bought their first homes when the rates were more like eight or nine or ten percent, and some of us went under. Pardon, including your parents. Yeah, some of us yeah. went under. Some of us didn't. Some of us didn't even know what we were signing when we signed it, and looked at our interest rate like four years down the road and went, "What? <laughs> I'm paying what?" And uh, refinanced. But I, I don't know where you went to business school, Dave, but. I believe the phrase I, I would apply here is crock-a-hooey is what I would say. That That's what I would have to say. Um, but thanks for the call. Do you, have you heard this one before? I'm so glad you chimed in there. Um, because, yes, if you look back to when a lot of our parents were buying their first home, yeah, I mean, the interest rates were actually significantly higher than what we have become yes. accustomed to. Yes. Right? Um, so comparatively, yes, it's you know, this is alarming. We're like, oh my gosh, the rates keep going up and up. But when we really do take a look back at when our parents' generation were buying their homes, we're actually still um, a bit comparable, if not still ahead of them, um, as far as interest rates, depending on when they bought. Have we all learned now, in in most cases, to be especially wary of um, variable? I mean, for some people, it's, you know, if you know you're going to be on an assignment somewhere for no more than five years and then you're gone, maybe the maybe the adjustable rate makes more sense. But for most people, am I wrong to think it's better to be able to plan to know what you're going to pay, period, end of story? Yes, typically. Um, And so particularly on the south and west sides of Chicago, our communities were absolutely devastated by the 2008 debacle, right? So we worked really hard with our residents to make sure that these are predictable monthly spends um, that they understand how long the term is and that they have budgeted and can afford to home their home. And so that home can then be passed down from generation to generation. I live in a generational home. Um, and so that is also how we get our communities, particularly the black community, um, which is losing ground on home ownership right now. This is how we get the possibility of regaining that ground as well as achieving and closing the wealth gap that we have within America between black and white homeowners. Yeah, it's really, I mean, I, I think my first real clue to what had happened, I'm sure you're familiar with the book Family Properties. Um, mm-hmm. th- that was my first inkling as to what had actually happened in the city of Chicago in terms of the human toll and the structure that was set up. If you've never read this book, I recommend it. Um, it reads like a thriller, but really, it, if you ever wondered what happened to neighborhoods that were disinvested, this is one good way to to find out. Um, But I I wanted to to shift the focus just a little bit, and I don't know how relevant this is in the neighborhoods where you work, but I I had a neighbor who um, worked a job that is a modest paying job, and she supported herself. She didn't make a lot of money, but she was able to buy a condo with a first-time home buyer loan and a a benefit, and then 
the building deconverted and she didn't have a choice. She had to sell her unit. And then the bitterest pill of all was she had to buy another unit without the first time homebuyer support since technically she wasn't one. Is that still the case or has the city taken pity on people who are forced to leave their owned homes and extended the first time homebuyer supports if, if you had to move and lose your own home through no fault of your own? Depending on the program, right? So each of the programs have um, specific rules around them. For some of them, if you've been outside of your mortgage, meaning that mortgage has been paid off for at least three years, um, you can requalify um, for those same um, assistance programs. Mm-hmm. So it does. It really does depend on the program, which again goes back to step one on that road to home ownership, which is circling back and talking to a HUD certified counselor because they can really educate you on what programs are going to be applicable to you. And there are groups. There are groups all over the city and in the burbs, right? It's not just where you are. Is there a directory that people can go to to see who near them might be able to provide them with this kind of information? Um, I can't say off the top of my head that I know of. However, here's what I will say, and I will say it loud and proud. Neighborhood Housing Services of Chicago, while we support Chicago, the greater Chicago land community and the south suburb area, we are partners with other organizations and there is no staking of claim to any, you know, having everyone come to us. So if there is a partner organization that is in a community that is more convenient for you, by all means, when you call us, we will help you get to the services that are going to be um, most advantageous for you. So if, if someone... If someone calls you and says, you know, I really want my my kid to go to school in Oak Park, can you help me? You would be able to send them to somebody in Oak Park, for example, that might be able to help them. That we could refer them to a A group. If it's a home ownership counseling organization that is specific to Oak Park, yes, but we also do service people in Oak Park. So particularly in this environment where a lot of our work is done remotely because it's still, even though... We're in endemic stage of COVID. Um, it's still a COVID environment. So a lot of our services are uh, provided virtually. So regardless of where you are in the city, we can support in that way. But we also have offices on the west side, as well, actually two offices in the North Lawndale area and in Humble Park. One on the south side in the Chatham community and then one in centrally located in Wicker Park. Let me let me ask you if people want to ask. Let, let me ask you a little bit about um, your group. What's the genesis of your group, and and how are you supported? And you know who who pays your light bill so that you can provide this service to other people? Great question. Uh, Neighborhood housing services has been around since 1975, and our sole mission as a nonprofit really is to help people buy, fix, and keep their homes. We are advocates for affordable home ownership. And making sure that people can buy in neighborhoods of choice. And from a neighborhood strategies perspective, all of our communities in Chicago should be neighborhoods of choice. So we work actively to make sure they are. We are funded through the goodwill, basically, of donors. Sometimes they are banks that donate. Sometimes they're insurance providers that donate. Sometimes it's just, you know, Miss Johnson who said, you know what, I got my house through you and I appreciate that. And so I'm going to give back. It is fully supported by donations as well as we do work for the city as far as administering um, contracts and things of that nature but we are a nonprofit organization all of our services that we provide to the community are free of choice and if i could some of those services include home buyer education classes which are often required for your mortgage those are all free and we do them in different 
um, platforms and scenarios so that it is accessible to people. All of our post-purchase, meaning once you bought that house, we don't just leave you hanging. Oh, we I got a question. I got a question. Question yeah. for you, because I'm so fond of doing this, because when I bought my first house, I literally could do nothing to it but dig out weeds in the yard. Like, that was all at a card table and two folding chairs and my mattress from college, and that was it. But one of the great assets... For for I mean I'm guessing you have a whole sheet of where people can get stuff for that's recycled, repurposed, reused. I'm I'm assuming. Do you lead a seminar for people and how to do your home with stuff that's um, not brand new and looks brand new or can be made to look brand new? Is that a resource you offer? Because I love that personally. We have partner organizations that do focus on specific areas. We more focus on the structure and the infrastructure and how to maintain it. Um, but also looking at, hey, it's winter time. What should you be thinking about to winterize that property? Brilliant. When it comes to more specifics about um, particularly bungalows, right? I'm a bungalow kid. I have one of those historic ones that we have to love through it. Right? Ooh, ooh, with so the wood and the stained glass. Wait, wait, you have to tell me, do you have the wood and the stained glass windows? Because then I'm going to drool right on this microphone. <laughs> I have the wood. Our prior owners, however, in their lack of wisdom, covered over the stained glass windows. So that's the project that I actually have to unveil they're behind brick. Wait, they're there? They're there? Mm-hmm. Oh, they're there. They're oh, my gosh. Like, oh, my gosh. I would be out there in the middle of the night with a crowbar. I don't think I could sleep until I'd opened it up. It's been delightful speaking with you. We're going to make sure that, that people know, you know, where to, I'm going to make sure people know where to find you on my socials because it's, it's such a great resource that you're offering. And I thank you for your time and for being with us on WCPT. You've just heard from Tiffany Smith. Ms. Smith is the Associate Director of South Outside strategies for neighborhood housing services of Chicago. And if you've been panicking over this news about the Fed hiking your interest rates, maybe your blood pressure just came down a little. Live, local, and progressive, it's the Joan Esposito Show. There's new information. Explosive new information. It's how every day starts. Need for information. Get the info you need from Santita Jackson. Weekday morning starting at 6 on WCPT 820. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. It is Joan Esposito's show. I'm Tori Ryder in for Ms. Esposito. She will return next week. Live, local, and progressive is what it's about. So I'm keeping Joan's chair warm for her. Someone who does more than keep a chair warm. In Chicago City Council, Alderman Matt Martin will be joining us to talk about what he's been up to in the 47th Ward. Um, And it sort of piggybacks on what we were just discussing with Ms. Smith a moment ago. Are we we ready to go with the Alderman? Hey, Matt Martin, welcome to WCPT. Hey, good afternoon. Thank you so much for allowing me to join you. Well, it's my pleasure so far. We'll we'll see how it goes, won't we? So um, I don't know if you had a chance to hear. We were just joined by uh, Miss Tiffany Smith of the um, Southside Strategies for Neighborhood Housing Services. And you've been working really hard on some new developments uh, for people and preserving uh, two and three flats and... Um, I also wanted to ask you about some strange developments with the Bring Chicago Home proposal. 
From what I read in, I think it was Block Club, um, they didn't get a quorum, so they couldn't vote on Bring Chicago Home funding in the city council. Is that still the case? They didn't get to vote on any of that? That's right. So we had a, uh, a window within which we needed to vote on this really important proposal, which is uh, many of the listeners would know, will know, proposes to increase the one-time real estate transfer tax whenever you sell a piece of property. But in this situation, if you sell a piece of property for over a million dollars, say a very large downtown building, say a skyscraper, and that additional amount of money would go towards housing and homelessness services. Well, I I want to hold you up right there. Hold, Hold up, hold up, hold up. Because interestingly enough, even in my, I live in Uptown, And even in my block-to-block spotty sort of neighborhood, and I'm not sure if Uptown still holds this distinction, but we used to have more SROs in Uptown than any other neighborhood in the entire city of Chicago. There's just single-room occupancies. That's like the, the last thing between sleeping under a viaduct. I mean, in some cases, you literally had a, a room with a chicken wire ceiling uh, and a partition that was like fiberboard and no bathroom. That was that was a lot of the housing for a while in Uptown. But now, now, even homes that were just sort of basic, a few hundred thousand dollar homes are approaching a million dollars. So it's not just skyscrapers. I mean, those those are tens of millions of dollars. You you can have a single family home that's providing an affordable unit in the attic or the coach house or the garage or whatever. And that unit is now worth a, a million dollars. So I'm imagining that there were a lot of voters in Chicago who said, wait, wait a minute. It's not like we're rich if we have a million dollar house in all these neighborhoods. Did you hear from any of those people? Uh, I think what we heard from with folks is that um, when you're selling a home for well over a million dollars, it's oftentimes not just a single family that, yes, there can be basement units and coach houses. But when we're talking about how many properties in total um, fall within that category, it's about two to three percent of all sales across the city. So the vast majority of residential and commercial sales wouldn't trigger this. What we heard from folks... Where, where's that data coming from that only 3% of the properties in Chicago are valued over a million dollars? That just sounds odd to me. So no, no, not valued, sold. These are one-time sales. So it's really clear, it's really important to be clear about this is a one-time transfer tax when a property is being sold. Certainly but any time, but, but any time it's sold, not a not a one-time, like only one-time transfer. If if I am, you know, son of Pritzker and I've got a house worth a million and a half dollars and I sell it for a million and a half dollars and then the next person sells it for a million eight, that transfer tax applies every single time, right? That's right. And that's and we currently have a transfer tax. This is not a, a proposal that would uh, create something that doesn't currently exist. Absolutely. This happens uh, a transfer tax every time, every time a property is sold, be it residential or commercial. So what I was reading and what I was hearing in Block Club and elsewhere was that it was a lot of these up and coming neighborhoods, Ravenswood, um, Lincoln Square, these near north neighborhoods that were the. I mean, I know that my alderman literally stood out in the hall. (laughs) And when I asked about it, I was told we had some sort of appointment to go to. So um, 
Was there, what was the talk amongst the aldermen? How did it come to pass that you couldn't get a quorum to vote on this thing? What was the conversation like without putting names on it? Tell me what happened there. You know, there were a host of reasons. For this particular meeting, quorum required that at least half of city council members, so 26 out of 50, show up. Um, And we were really close to that. We were just a few individual short. Some had uh, some medical appointments that they couldn't miss, including for family members who had experienced some very significant and emergency issues. I get that. Others, as is, is often the case, you have issues come up. But to your point, there were some who were in the building um, who had they just simply showed up. This was a conversation. We weren't going to vote, but this was a conversation that we need to have about how we're going to deal with what is a growing crisis of homelessness, not just individuals who are very visibly homeless in terms of being outside, but individuals who in greater and greater numbers are doubled up in individuals' homes at this point, uh, approaching 66,000 Chicagoans. So uh, if you don't get this transfer tax... Where's the money going to come from to, I guess this is a two-pronged question. Well, no, I got a question and sort of a, and a bone of contention. <laughs> I'm going to categorize these very carefully for you, Alderman. So the, the question is, what are you going to do if you don't get the transfer tax? And my bone of contention is, um, I've lived in a lot of different cities. Radio will do that to you. And weirdly, I, I came back to Chicago and everything looked like a bargain compared to Every other compared to D.C., compared to New York, compared to Boston, compared to L.A., compared to San Francisco. This city is a bargain. You I mean, still. So I I sometimes wonder if Chicago knows how good they've got it. You may not get a fancy apartment on the lake, but you can usually find something very habitable that you could support on not much more than minimum wage, if you're careful, no or no? It's, it's while it's certainly less expensive than coastal cities like San Francisco, New York, Boston, Washington, D.C., um, I, I wouldn't call it a cheap city. Um, and what we do know is that, especially with the pandemic and uh, the K-shaped recovery that we've seen, middle and working class residents are finding it increasingly challenging to find and keep a home that they can afford. And to your p- question about, well, where's the money going to come from? We have short term funding right now in the form of the federal COVID relief uh, program, ARPA, um, yes. a program yes. that President Biden and Democratic Congress passed. Those funds are one time in nature, one time in nature. So uh, last year in the fall, we allocated um, uh, dozens of millions of dollars to rapid rehousing, permanent supportive housing, essentially the sorts of housing supports in addition to shelters that Chicagoans increasingly need. But because those funds are one time in nature, once they go away, we have nothing left right now in our current budgets to address what is a growing crisis. So there's and no, there's no plan B. If they don't get this transfer tax, nobody's got a plan B is what you're saying? That's what I'm saying. And so you and others will certainly recall that we were pushing all across the city and state to have a progressive state income tax through a constitutional amendment. It didn't pass due in no small part to Ken Griffin and others. Ken Griffin, who, by the way, spent about $54 million 
on that campaign, but as, as uh, um, reporters have subsequently found, is saving about $51 million annually. So that was a good investment for him. Absolutely. I, I have to for Chicago. I have to say something about that because I haven't, I wasn't on the air when that was happening here in Chicago, but I, I'm just going to say this for the record. Part of the reason that that thing went, went down was that they didn't label it. I had people calling me up going, which is the one where we get to do the progressive tax? And, I, and nobody knew which it was on the ballot. And in my opinion, that was a profound failure on the part of the advocates for that progressive tax. They didn't label it accurately. It would be like going into the store and having everything in the snack aisle in a plain white bag. Well, if you want the potato chips, like you have no idea what you're getting. Could be the pork rinds. You don't know. So you just like gave up and walked out. And that's what happened, in my opinion. They did, Nobody knew what the amendment was actually called on the ballot. And that's the end of my little soapbox speech about that. Very often the liberals do it to ourselves. I am sorry that we do, but we do. Um, okay, you got to hear my little speech. So um, you you don't know what's going to be plan B if we don't get that done. So let's just move along to the next thing you're, you're working on. Unless you have something else you really want to put in. I don't want to cut you off too short. Was there something else you really wanted to, to talk to, uh, talk about with that Bring Chicago Home? Or should we have some fun with uh, environmental stuff? <laughs> well, let's just let's just close the loop on this, which is even though we didn't have enough of my colleagues show up um, uh, to have a hearing, this doesn't mean that the proposal is done. Um, it just means that we're not going to vote on it via referendum in the upcoming February municipal elections. But just like housing and homelessness problems are not going away. The coalition and this proposal is not going away. We're going to continue working with colleagues and people all across the city to pass this ordinance so that at the end of the day, we can bring Chicago home. Okay. well, I would for my two cents, I would like to see there be a plan B in case that just doesn't fly. I would like to see, I don't know, maybe a support for landlords who want to build um, a, a low price infill in their property. You got all these people with bungalows and these big old garages that maybe they're not using and maybe. Maybe they could build to code um, a, a modestly priced infill. I mean, there are all kinds of creative solutions that the city could be looking at in case this thing doesn't fly. So for for my no, two I cents, we've already done that. We no, no, I think that's a terrific point. And I think this isn't all of the above. I was one of the lead aldermanic sponsors of an ordinance that legalizes the creation of new basement units and coach houses, because one of the reasons why. Chicago is cheaper than some other cities is because a lot of our pre-World War II and immediately post-World War II housing stock allowed by right the building of basement units and coach houses. That was in, a, in, in the 50s uh, outlawed, and it became very long and cumbersome and expensive to do that. So in an ordinance that we passed a year and a half ago that went into effect last year, we legalized that. My ward, the 47th ward, is leading the city with the most applications to build one or more of these units. But that alone isn't going to get us to a place where we can address uh, the housing and homelessness crisis that we're we're facing. So well, really let me add on to that, then put all of our eggs in a single basket as long. Yes. No, no baskets with all eggs. I'm for that. I would also like to say that if, if you're making it easier for people to build these auxiliary units in their coach houses and their base, and their attics, it might also be nice to offer 
low interest loans through the city to help people bring these units or build these units up to code. That's what I want to say about that. Let's talk about environmental stuff because in a weird way, these two things almost go together as far as improving housing stock. And I'll tell you what I mean in just a second, if you will hold on. Would you do that for me, Alderman? Absolutely. Thank you. We will be rejoining Alderman Matt Martin in just a second. It's Joan Esposito's show. I'm Tory Writer in for Joan, live local and progressive. You're listening to WCPT 820 because facts matter. This is Joan Esposito, live local and progressive on WCPT 820. It is Jonas Esposito's show. I am Tori with you, writer like the Chuck. You can find me on all the socials. And today, right here in for Joan, live, local, and progressive, we are joined uh, by Alderman Matt Martin. He is the alderman in the 47th Ward, and he's been working very hard on... Um, the problem of homelessness growing and really observable now in Chicago, just about everywhere, even in the winter, which is just heartbreaking, and also working hard on um, the environmental aspects of um, infrastructure here in Chicago, specifically electric vehicles. Alderman Martin, thanks again for holding on with us. Um, let's talk a little bit about electrification in Chicago. We're going to be joined by um, a sponsored hour of, of ComEd next hour. Um, but you, you're you working hard on making it possible for people to have electric vehicles in the city. Could you speak to that a little? Absolutely. We uh, are seeing that uh, in part in response to the ongoing climate crisis, that more and more car companies are committing to selling only electric vehicles within the next 10 to 15 years. And rather than waiting until the 11th hour to figure out our infrastructure needs, I strongly believe that we need to make plans right now to continue uh, removing barriers to individuals who are interested and able to purchase new or used vehicles uh, who, that are electric vehicles. So alongside my colleague, Alderman Brendan Riley from the 42nd Ward, we passed an ordinance to increase charging uh, infrastructure requirements in large new residential and commercial buildings, uh, 25% of those new parking spaces. And then we just want to make sure, and this is in part going to be informed by uh, an analysis that's being conducted by a third party right now, how to expand electric vehicle all across the city, or charging infrastructure across the city. Because as you well know, a number of residents um, choose to or have to park their vehicles on the street. Not everybody has a dedicated parking space. So let's make sure we're putting in time right now before we get to that huge uh, critical juncture to make sure that we have charging options for everybody who needs them. Oh, it would be so much fun if those nasty little parking meter boxes could also charge your car. Can I can I tell you something that I learned recently about a problem with electrification in the city? Mm, please. So... Um, I, I know of a situation from close up and personal where someone with an older home, like a hundred and something, like the age of many of Chicago's older housing stock, these bungalows that people have, um, or the older four square houses, wanted to do solar and charge a, um, an electric vehicle with the solar. And the word came back after consulting with four different solar companies. Yeah, we could put solar on your house. And yeah, we could put solar on your garage, but you would have to redo the roof because the law as it stands now says that your roof 
has to withstand a 100-year snow, which with solar, it would not. And what was interesting to me was there's all this money out there, and yet how many people realistically have a roof that could withstand a 100-year snow anyway? And when I when uh, this was discussed with the solar company, I'll do full disclosure, this was me. We were, like, really excited about electrification. And um, I said, well, look... Um, we we can't we'll redo our roof and put a new roof on we need to do that anyway and it's environmentally sound but we're not going to jack up our roof so that it you know if if the if a mindot truck rolled over it it would be fine and the guy said to me you know in germany they want solar so badly they've changed the rules you don't have to have a roof that will hold up in a 100 year snow anymore in germany but so far illinois is lagging did you know that I didn't. I've, I've heard of other hurdles that people have had with older homes and uh, having uh, the sort of infrastructure needed for EV charging, but I was not aware of that specific requirement. So there is a thing that might be something that people should investigate because there's money from the federal government. Uh, and if you have your way, there'll be help from the city. But if the city basically says, no, only new, only people with new houses or only people with houses, you know, built so that you could drop the Willis Tower on them and they'd be fine, can have solar on their roof. It's, it's absurd. What, what are people supposed to do? They're kind of stuck. You can't. I mean, I, I guess this goes back for a, a, for a long time. Solar was a luxury for rich people. It was a it was a you know one of those show offy things like look at us, we've got solar, aren't we precious? It was kind of a Marin County thing. But now, if it's really going to be for everybody, I hate to even speak his name. Um, it was Elon Musk who first said, you know, let's make electric cars affordable, relatively affordable. But the stuff to charge those cars not yet affordable so not everybody to be clear needs solar panels in order to have uh, ev charging but i hear your point completely if we want to make sure that we're being as environmentally conscious as possible and these are the sorts of things that we need to work through including at a hyper local level to make sure that we're reducing these barriers as quickly and thoughtfully as possible because before like i i hear your points of uh, what Germany has done and what we should consider doing. But, you know, before co-signing that, let me talk with uh, our engineering professionals at the Department of Buildings and others to make sure we're doing this thoughtfully. But I will say at the end of the day, as, as uh, another uh, somewhat related but still distinct issue around environmental protection and sustainability, our, our lead service line um, uh, issues up until the 1980s, that was required via code. So we know that we don't always get this right as a city. And so all the more reason why we need to elevate these conversations, talk with experts, but also talk with residents to see what they're experiencing on the ground and how we can help. Uh, absolutely. I heard from another neighbor who wanted to um, build a charging station and the company that was thinking of putting that in for them said, the hardest inspections you'll get right now are these EV and solar installs because the city's inspectors aren't really comfortable with the systems yet. And so they just go nuts with every tiny little rule that with other systems, they might say, OK, well, practically, that's not going to be a problem. Is there a lot of training going on in the city and the and where where the 
interface happens where the consumer meets the city and wants to put in charging for EVs or builders or developers want to do this? Is the city making it easier for them or no? I think this is something that's increasingly on the city's radar, in particular the Department of Buildings and their inspectors. I have yet to hear from residents who have had similar complaints, but would welcome even people who are not residents of my ward reaching out to my office to let me know so that we can work collaboratively with the Department of Buildings around those inspections. Um, Several times uh, a month I'm hearing from residents um, sharing their experiences, with um, uh, installing EV chargers uh, in their home, in their building, be it an apartment, uh, condo, uh, single-family home. And I want to make sure that we're making it easier and easier for folks to do that and uh, that we don't have um, problematic experiences in particular with inspectors. Oh, good. Because, you know, that word problematic and inspector is almost one word some places at this point. I know you can't say that and you can't agree with me on that, but... It's just, you know, I think there aren't too many Chicagoans who would disagree with that statement. Um, but I could be wrong. So let's talk a little bit about um, pedestrian safety and bike stuff. This is very much in, in the conversation now. Um, what's the status of protecting bikers, bicycle riders in the city of Chicago? I understand that now tickets can be given out by who, who are the new people who've been deputized to ticket people? So we're talking about um, different city officials um, who work in particular departments who can do this, um, not simply uh, the police department. But really, when we're talking about the progress that we're, we're making, it exists, but it's happening too slowly. Um, many parts of the city have been touched by um, car crashes that have been fatal um, for both uh, pedestrians as well as for bikers. Um, and so what we want to make sure that we're doing is having a, really a network of protected bike lanes that reflects how people move around the city. Because right now we still are making decisions in the patchwork way. In the 47th ward, it might be one look. In the 46th ward, it's a different one. 48. 33rd, like all the wards around us, that's not how people go through the city. You don't think, oh, well, I want to make sure I'm, I'm riding my bike through this ward, but avoiding this other ward. That makes no sense. And so we need to make sure that we're, we're building out infrastructure that reflects how people actually travel. So, yes, because some of these bike lanes, I, I live in fear for people I know who bike around the city. Um, I know that Patty Vasquez was talking about how in Europe they learn to open their car doors differently. Like if you're mm-hmm. if you're driving on the left side, if that's the driver's side, you turn around and open your driver's side door with your right hand so that you have to be looking to see. But I'm wondering if there's any conversation with Chicago police about how to happen, how to handle pedestrian bike incidents. Um, I've heard from people in in biking clubs that they've had incidents where they've been doored. And um, when the cops come, they're just like, well, you know, <laughs> nothing we can do. You all right? You're not all right? What what kind of education and effort is going into um, putting the responsibility on wherever it belongs? It's a great question. In, in a situation like this, if we're going to be relying primarily or exclusively on police officers 
to uh, help address this. I don't think that's the highest and best use of their time. My understanding is that Omar Aquino, who's a state senator, has passed legislation requiring that for people who are undertaking um, uh, driver's training, that they are opening the doors with their right hand, as you described, if you're driving on the, 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 the left side of the car. Most uh, most Chicagoans and, and U.S. residents do. So I think that's a really important step that we've already taken. But it's one thing to have that in a curriculum. It's another thing to have, um, say, parents, family members, close friends who are, are teaching younger people to drive, reminding them that's the right way to go. Yeah, that should be in the driver's ed. One more quick suggestion before I run. Um I would love to see, you know how there are, um, with 311, you can put in a picture of whatever you need the city to do. I'd like to see a part of the site where if you're a witness to one of these incidents, you don't have to hang around until the cops get there. You can file a report with your video of the incident if you were a witness to it or part of it. It'd be nice if uh, um, Chicago police or the city offered some kind of place where you could um, file a report with video of an incident if you saw happen because sometimes people do and now we all have these security cameras we can file our video there too i think that's a wonderful idea and i think one thing i want to make sure we continue to be mindful about is we're thinking and making decisions about how to improve bike and pedestrian safety is uh the the fines and fee system that we put in place um sadly a disproportionate number of fatal crashes involving cars happen um, in parts of the city that are also some of our lowest income areas. And so yeah, but every, everybody, everybody has a phone and most of those phones are connected. We're going to have to leave it there. I wish we had more time. I thank you so much for being willing to give us your time. Uh, that's Alderman Matt Martin. It is four o'clock. We are WCPT Chicago's Progressive Talk. This hour of Joan Esposito Live Local and Progressive is brought to you by Team Hawkberg. If you want to buy a house or refinance a house, call 855-56-DAVID or visit 56david.com. At Lowe's, every pro is an MVP to us. MVP's Pro Rewards members visit Lowe's now and earn bonus points on select products and brands like Power Pro. Then redeem for Lowe's heat gift cards and more. Offer valid through one Bonus points calculated before taxes and fees after applicable discounts, if any. Subject to program terms, points expire 12 23 Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. 407, I'm Tori Ryder, in for Joan Esposito. A sad but quick local news update. Block Club Chicago is reporting that uh, we have one teenager killed in a shooting, three others injured by shots just a little bit ago at uh, Benita Juarez High School. Four teenagers, three boys, one girl. Two of the kids are in stable condition at Stroger. One is in critical condition. And as I mentioned, one has succumbed to his wound. So we'll have more on that as it comes in while I'm here on WCPT. Joining us uh, is a, a gentleman who is, they don't make a bigger kahuna, really. <laughs> they really do not. Um, and this segment of Live Local and Progressive is brought to you by ComEd, which is why we're privileged to be joined by Gil Quinones. He is the CEO of ComEd. And if you have questions about how your utility works and why your utility works and why you can count on it uh, being there when you turn it on, um, oh, I have an adaptation. I am wrong. It will be a 4.30 that will be joined. Okay. 
I think I think we need to have like a big horn. Turi made a mistake. Turi made a mistake. That'll be at the bottom of the hour, which is fine because we have no shortage of folks to talk with as well. In a moment, we will be joined by um, one of the co-founders and directors of the Black Research Collective. And what they're doing, meeting in the city, is so exciting. They've been making sure that... Well, information and research and data that affects the community is generated and collected and overseen by the community. And we'll be talking with her in just a moment. I have a couple of texts I want to share with you about stuff that we've been talking about. Um, we talked in a moment ago with the alderman about um, the progressive tax, and we got an interesting um and I can't speak to whether this is accurate, but we got a text saying Minnesota passed a progressive tax bill. Um, and the same year that they did that, they started fighting about how to spend the surplus. There's a thought. <laughs> Wouldn't it be nice to have to fight about how to spend the surplus, which right now we don't have? Uh, this from a gentleman calling himself Creekside Brian. Let me get this straight. A bank will donate money to an organization to help middle-class homeowners upgrade their housing in affluent Wicker Park, but the bank won't give a homeless person a dime. Uh, that's not exactly the conversation. The conversation was how to get working people into housing that they can afford and maintain and own. Um, and as far as giving homeless people a dime, I'm not sure that that's necessarily the bank's job. But when more people are housed, that's more people working and that's more people able to work. And that's more people earning a living, and that presumably means fewer homeless people. So there, there's an all-boats scenario. Before we are joined um, by the COO of ComEd, as mentioned, as promised, we have the privilege of being joined by Sherry Runner. And I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. It's Runner and not Runner. Is that accurate? Welcome. You're on WCPT. Have I, have I finally got it right? You've got it right. That's that's me. Thank Good. You. I'm filled with shame and humiliation for getting the schedule wrong, but we're just going to move right along here. Your CV was so interesting. Um, the Urban League, and um, you're currently. Am I right? Are you with Access Living now? Is that is that accurate? Uh, yeah, I'm on the board of directors of Access Living. Yeah, that's wonderful. Um, and for those who don't know, can can you just take a moment to talk about Access Living and 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 who you are and what you do before we move on to the um, the Black Researchers Collective? Because I know a little bit about it and it's so cool. Okay. Yeah. Sure. No. Uh, well, <laughs> I'll tell you about myself. I'm a lifelong Chicago resident. Um, I have a career a background as a banker. I came out of banking, you know, shell-shocked, as most people do, and went into uh, the not-for-profit world uh, and have been doing that for a long, long time. I spent some time with the Urban League, um, and after my stint at the Urban League and really understanding how uh, African-American communities are characterized uh, using uh, data and facts, uh, started uh, uh, with a very esteemed colleague, uh, the Black Researchers Collective. Talk um, a little bit. At that. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I said we've been at this for about the last three years. So talk about, the, I mean, it, it, 
it's a MacArthur Foundation awardee, and it sounds so exciting, um, making sure that the history and the data of the black community are brought to bear on the destiny, the projects, the goals, aspirations of that community. Can you speak a little bit about what you've set up and how it works and what's unique about it? Sure. So the the Black Researchers Collective, our mission is to train and equip communities with research tools um, so that they can be more civically engaged and policy informed. The idea there is that there is so much data and there is so much uh, research done on African-American communities that's used to characterize those communities without using their voices. Um, Oftentimes, research and the the policies that come from that research is done with a specific goal in mind at the end, using the data and information available. It's extracted from those communities and it's used to determine policy and programs that are... um, sort of imposed on those communities without community voice. So do a compare and contrast for me. Give me a study that was done. I am familiar with the expression, nothing about us without us. Give me an an example of some data and research that didn't come from the community that it was supposed to serve and where that went wrong and contrast that with some of the data that you've procured and how that works better, if you would. So... Let's let's talk about how we approach uh, violence in the communities or how we've talked about violence in communities and, and basically talked about mentoring. And the, the policies that were uh, produced around mentoring were developed by um, the ex- an external uh, force and uh, came to communities. And while mentoring is important, it, how it is done and how it is um, uh, enacted uh, is best done when it is done with the input and ideas of those people for whom it's being done. What are and some so, of the things that would be done um, if the if the if the volunteers or the mentors or the program came from outside versus coming from inside? So what what would be important to someone who lives in a community where um, decades worth of policy? Uh, in has devastated those communities where disinvestment has occurred, and so that the so the focus is on the violence, not the surrounding um, infrastructure that uh, creates communities that are unlivable. And so, if that if we actually talked about what was needed in those communities, such as uh, the absent absentee landlords, uh, the trash collection, uh, better schools, we talked about how uh, people uh, engaged with their youth. If we talked about all of those things in terms of the structural impediments to strong communities versus blaming the residents, um, we might actually make progress. And so as we've thought about, you know, how we can um, manage and face uh, the issues that we have for violence in our city, we've never really thought about what it takes to structurally change rather than um, uh, implicate the residents and change the residents. Um, many of the a- uh, African-American communities, in fact, all of the African-American communities in the city of Chicago have a huge history uh, that is not necessarily um, 
celebrated or known. Uh, the, the people who migrated to Chicago, oftentimes from the South, uh, came here and developed strong communities with amazing backgrounds and a lot of uh, a wealth of resources. Um, a lot of those resources have been decimated over time. Uh, a lot of this, uh, the ways that those communities uh, have uh, become less uh, livable uh, is a result of disinvestment and unequal access to resources. And so it's important for us to pull that out and allow, allow the narrative about those communities to be developed by the residents of those communities so that they can do their own research and use that data for the kinds of things that they think are important to strengthening and and broadening uh, success in their communities. Okay, so in a moment, if you'll hang with me, I want to ask you about the conference that you're having, and then I want to ask you about um, an effort that came from the community was executed according to the wishes of the community, I thought, and then did not go so well, specifically the the Whole Foods that was lobbied for, opened, closed. And if you would use that as a sort of a case history for me about what why that happened the way that it happened, um, because that's one of the ones that people are pointing to now going, well, you know, we, we, we did what was asked and, it, and then, then they... If something doesn't go well, it's like in my business. If you if you hire someone who's unusual for a talk show and the talk show doesn't go well, you'll hear things like, well, we had a woman and she didn't do a great job, so we're never hiring another one. And it's no use pointing to, to all the guys who burst into flame on the air and going, well, you don't say you're not hiring any more of them. So if you could use that as sort of a case history and talk about your conference in a moment, or if you don't want to talk about that particular case history, that's fine too. Hang on if you would. We'll be right back with you. It's Joan Esposito's show, Live Local and Progressive on WCPT. Chicago's Progressive Talk, WCPT 820, where facts matter. Attention, everyone. Don't turn that dial. Joan Esposito, Live Local and Progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. It is Joan Esposito's show. I'm Tori Ryder. With me now, Sherry Runner, co-founder and director of Black Research Collective. They're having a big meeting. I believe that's on Sunday. Is that right, Ms. Runner? Sunday? That's correct. Sunday the 18th uh, from 2 to 5, we'll be at Hatch 41. Uh, We're going to gather community members, uh, philanthropists, uh, community organizations, and talk about the work that we do in community. Our organization runs uh, workshops that are 12 hours, and uh, we actually uh, pay our participants to come and learn about how to use research tools, what research tools are, uh, oftentimes, and mostly people don't understand um, what research is or how it can be used and how accessible it is to them and how much they use it every day, um, how much data they give and is given to them uh, on a daily basis and how they are, uh, as we like to call them, civic researchers. Oh. So we're going we're gonna to gather together and uh, talk about uh, what we've done over the last year, um, working with community um, and sharing these skills and getting people uh, comfortable with uh, really wanting to know when research is done in community. If they are not doing it, how they can uh, use data to uh, further legislatively their own causes and make sure that their, their, that their legislators are able to understand that they've got data and they've got the facility of use with it as well. Cool. So um, I think I think that sort of harks back to the old expression, if, if, if you're not sure 
who's selling you the product, you're the product. I think that's some something like that. Uh, this event is open to the public, then you mentioned, and free. And is there a website you want to send people to quickly so that they could find out more if they want to? Yeah, the, the blackresearcherscollective.com uh, is our website. Uh, we're online. Okay. Um, so and- let me let me let me pause you there. So if they go there, they'll find the information. Let me ask you about a very highly publicized um, a feature that was requested by a community, which was um, the Whole Foods that was requested under Mayor Emanuel's tenure, and it was a big thing that the community really got active and got organized and lobbied hard for this. And I have to tell you that when, when this was going on, I was thinking. Geez, a Pete, you know, I, I, I can't afford to shop there. And I was I was sad for the people who work there and that it didn't work out and closed closed down. Is that the kind of situation where um, more data would have made a difference or would it not have made a difference? What's your take on that story as as it unfolded? You know, I, I don't know a whole lot about what happened with Whole Foods in terms of the data that Whole Foods used to make the investment decision that they did or that the developers used to, to make that decision. I would assume um, that that would be better asked of those people and Whole Foods why they made the decision to close the store. Um, I'm pro- I'm pretty sure that the community didn't make the decision to close the store. No, I, I was just surprised that the community, I mean, it would be like... I, I, to be perfectly candid, I, I wouldn't lobby for that store because I, in my community, most people, what we lobbied for was a food co-op and a food co-op that, that serves everyone and has food available because it's a very diverse community and financially diverse community. The people who have put money into the co-op want to make sure that the co-op is 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 comfortable place for people who are paying with all kinds of things like WIC cards and other kinds of funding. So I, I think my take on it was the city wanted to to show that it was doing what the neighbors asked of it regardless of the data but if you're not able to speak to that that's certainly fine i just wondered if you if you had insight on it um because i have no insight into the data that was used or how uh the community's wishes were um expressed in the in the development of a whole foods in inglewood i thought um, I think probably more than anything, to your point, it's important to know that people are very interested in health and wellness. Uh, they're very interested in having access to fresh vegetables and foods. Um, they're very interested in having access to places where they can walk and exercise. Yes. It's part of building stronger communities that are more livable. So, you know, if that was you know how that happened, I wouldn't know. But I, I think it's important to understand that when uh, communities are able to use data to create their own narrative, then they are in a better position. And that's what the Black Researchers Collective is working for. So it sounds like what you're telling me, if, if I understand it, this is exactly the kind of situation where the Black Researchers Collective could could really dig a little deeper and say, okay, what you're really asking for here isn't a particular branded product. It's a result. It's a place where people can work and have healthy, uh, healthy outcomes and, and just what you've described. Is that the kind of thing that the Black Researchers Group facilitates? 
the most important thing for us is to give community members voice. Um, we're not, you know, our, our, our purpose is not to tell people what they want, which is why we are so concerned about making sure that people understand that when research is done and that when studies are undertaken, that they understand the outcomes of those studies, that they're intimately involved with the decisions that are made with the data that's extracted from their community. And that, that when data is collected, that they can be a part of deciding what kind of data is collected and how the questions are asked. Ah, so when you bring when you bring people in who haven't participated in this process before, um, do you get any of those? Aha! Uh-huh, I didn't you know I didn't understand that that's what would happen to my data, or oh, I didn't understand that that's why they were asking these questions the way that they were. I mean, or were, the, or were the questions framed to even get at the point that was helpful to solving a problem within community? How questions are asked are is is extraordinarily important because you can ask a question to determine an answer that you want to get, but as well as get an answer that you don't want to get. So it's very important that people understand how research is used, how data is used, where it is. Um, data is information. It's everything from your, your, your zip code to your telephone number and beyond. Uh, so it's important for people to understand how that works, especially in this data-heavy world that yes. we live in where information is new and news is, is thrown at us 24 hours. Including whether you're willing to give your data at all. So that's, I'm guessing, something you also talk about. Exactly. Yes. Well, thank you. I think you've really shed some light and we will direct people if they want to come and and learn more, be part of it. The Black, um, the Director of Black Researchers is the title, is Sherry's title. But um, if you look for the Black Researchers Collective online, you'll be able to find out more about the group and how you can be a participant. Thanks so much for joining us on WCPT. I appreciate it. Okay, um, it is the it is Joan Esposito's show. In a moment, uh, we will be joined by the CEO of the people who make your lights go on. Yeah, that that's a pretty big deal, and you get to hear from him directly here on live, local, and progressive WCPT. Tune into the Tom Hartman Radio Program, your home for news, opinion, and insight, right here on WCPT 820, where facts matter. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. We are expecting Joan Esposito back next week. I'm Tory Ryder holding the spot for her. This segment of Live Local and Progressive is brought to you by ComEd. And so we're privileged to have with us the CEO of ComEd, Gil Quinones. Welcome to WCPT. It's good to have you. Thank you for having me. I I have questions for you and uh, a compliment. Um, never, ever in the city of Chicago do I not rely on my power supply. Um, and I'm guessing that that's a big point of pride and responsibility for you. How reliable was ComEd service in 2022? And, and what does that come down to for most of your customers? Well, we're actually setting a record this year. In fact, in the first 10 months of 2022 this year, reliability was better than in any prior year. And last year, uh, we were ranked number one in the United States as the most reliable utility when compared to similar utilities. And this is across the United States. 
that's a lot of customers that you're that you're competing against, as it were, um, to provide the best service for. Um, about how many customers do you service, and um, how many of those have just had no problems, no outages, no no nothing? They just turn on whatever they need to turn on, and there it is in 2022. Well, more than 3.6 million of our 4.2 million customers have experienced either zero or no more than one outage this year in 2022. That's impressive. There really is. I mean, can I ask you just, I want to ask you this because you know, um, what it takes to keep a grid going. When you see the news, when you're looking at what's going on in Ukraine, do you do you think, well, thank God that's not us? And how do you feel when you watch that going on over there, if you don't mind me asking? If you do mind me asking, because it's not Illinois and it's not ComEd, I just figured, I, I look at the TV and go, wow. <laughs> I know, there's a, there's a lot going on around the world. Uh, very, very tough situations, but... We're all fortunate being here in northern Illinois because our line workers are working 24-7, repairing, maintaining the grid to make sure that when people flip that switch, that we're going to be there. Yeah, that must mean a lot. Do you hear back from the customers about what reliability really means to them and um, a little bit maybe about how they're interacting with the with the smart grid that you've put together? Absolutely. You know, especially during storms. When we have storms and there are power outages, you know, all of our trucks are all over the streets, our line workers, and they usually interact with our customers directly because we need to access where the poles are and while the wires are down and fixing. And and they've been so um, really nice and receptive to all the hard work. You know, our line workers, we work whether it's snow or ice or it's 100 degree out there. What does that look like? I mean, do you find that people are so appreciative? They're like, you know, hey, hey, guys, hey, women, you know, need some hot chocolate? Or do you hear back from your line workers about how how their day goes when they interact with the customers there? Absolutely. And, you know, we, we try to make sure first that we secure the area and, and make sure everybody's safe. You know, electricity, we need to handle it with care. But you know, our, our communities here in Chicagoland and beyond all of northern Illinois have been so supportive of our line workers and, and all of our representatives who are out there supporting uh, the operation of the grid, but especially during storms and storm restoration. Is there anything that um, you wish that people knew about what it takes to keep that going, keep that grid going? I, I was noticing a data point that said... Um, that you have avoided nearly 19 million outages. And I'm wondering, how do you do that? And if customers, if there's anything we should know about it. Yeah, well, we we have been investing in our grid. Uh, You mentioned smart grid, you know, devices that can reroute power if there are uh, outages in specific areas. And when we do that, when we do reroute power and we make those kind of smart grid investments, we limit the amount of power outages or the duration of outages. And, and that's, that's great, especially now that we rely on electricity in almost everything that we do. And does it, I mean, I'm guessing that every outage is probably costly. So if you don't have one, you could probably calculate how much it saves. 
Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, just imagine if you don't have electricity within 24 hours, your phone, your computer, if you're driving an electric car, uh, all of your appliances when you go to the office, all of the equipment and systems that you have to to uh, use. The Ben and Jerry's in your freezer, the, the Ben and Jerry's in your the freezer, ben, your almond ben. milk, your eggs. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's like the, the oxygen of society, you know, without electricity. Almost everything stops. Yeah, I would imagine. And so have you put an exact, I mean, can can you kind of put a price tag on what these 19 million outages that you didn't have, what that saved for, for the company and for the customers? Yeah, there, there are standard ways of calculating it. And, you know, since we began our smart grid investments, Comet has helped customers avoid nearly 19 million power outages saving more than $3 billion. That's huge. Related costs. That That's is huge. absolutely huge. So I know that a lot of WCPT's listeners are really interested in the concept of clean energy and, of course, financially, things being uh, what they are right now, um, they don't want it to be too expensive. Could you speak a little bit to that? Yes, absolutely. Uh, Comment. We've been focused in making sure that we manage our costs efficiently and effectively. And that work contributed to Illinois having the lowest average electric bills in the Midwest for the 10th consecutive year, according to the U.S. Energy Information Administration. Wow. So, <laughs> in, fact, in fact, the fourth quarter of this year, we're one of the lowest. We have the one of the lowest average residential electric bill for residential customers. What What are some of the things that you put into place that help make um, the bills lower for Illinois residents and that contribute to that cost um, savings, if you will? Well, we, we make sure we manage our, our investment in the grid effectively and efficiently. We make sure that we are we have a lean organization to provide the service that is safe, reliable, and affordable for our customers. And then for those who are having difficulty paying their electric bills, we have a multitude of programs that can be helpful, like the Low Income Home Energy Assistance Program, or called LIHEAP. Mm-hmm. Uh, Comet also has another program called Supplemental Arrearage Reduction Program. That's a fancy that. word. What is that? That sounds so fancy. What is it? Exactly. So LIHEAP and SARP are really bill assistance programs. So for eligible customers, these are direct grants that will help them pay their bills. We also have a deferred payment arrangement program, budget billing to make sure, you know, you levelize your monthly payment, make it predictable, flexible payment options, alert so that people know to conserve when electricity is more expensive. Oh, could you could you talk could you talk more about that because um, my spouse signed us up for that program and it, I love it that I am um, up all night because I can run my dryer at two in the morning and I feel not only will I have warm fluffy sheets when I take them out but also <laughs> I am saving on the electricity bill. Could you speak about that a little bit? Absolutely. You know, this high usage alert, that, that enables customers like you to receive alerts when your usage is trending higher than normal. And this will help you manage overall use. And we'll give you tips. We give you tips on how to, how to you know, manage your energy, just like doing your laundry when 
electricity is cheaper during what we call off-peak hours. And so it's great. Uh, we're also now uh, introducing our community solar program. It's a renewable energy at deep discounted rates and a variety of energy efficiency programs, again, to give tips to our customers how to use energy wisely. Would you talk some more about your solar program? I was mentioning with um, one of our prior guests that I, I had looked into doing some of that, and I I haven't gotten enough information about ComEd's solar investments and program. Could you talk about that a little? Well, I, let me talk about two very specific programs. There's a, a solar for all program and a what we call a giveaway program. So these are targeted to communities so that they can subscribe and share the output of a solar installation of a community solar. And when you do so, you get clean energy, renewable energy at a discounted rate. So the giveaway program is targeted to low and moderate income customers. Those so- customers who can really need, who need a break and use clean energy. If you're listening and you want to be part of that, what is it on your ComEd bill that you would look? Would you look online? Where would you look to find out more about that? Well, one of the things to, to really find ways uh, is the use of our Smart Assistance Manager program, SAM, at ComEd.com slash SAM, S-A-M. That's one way in terms of trying to find ways to to help uh, in, in managing your electric bill. But also you can check our website at comet.com and look at all the, the offerings when it comes to renewable energy, uh, including solar. That's important. I think a lot of people don't really understand that that is part of your service that you provide to people. And as you pointed out, all of these programs working together result in a savings for the average customer. About about how much is that typically? Well, it depends. It depends on the size of the customer. It depends whether it's residential, small business, or commercial. But nevertheless, you know, we can be of assistance to navigate and to, to go step-by-step step in this process. We even have what we call ComEd's energy doctors to, to offer energy-saving tips. So what well, I say... Who are they? Do they make house calls? Do they, do they make house calls, the doctors? What do they do? Tell me. So, so what I say is set up a consultation with one of the ComEd energy doctors. Information is available at ComEd.com slash energy So it sounds like the website is a great portal. What are some of the, I mean, obviously you as the CEO of ComEd um, probably, well, let me ask you, what do you feel most proud of looking back over 2022? um, What what are the things that make you feel like, yeah, we got it right this year? We got it right this year because I think we provided the most reliable and resilient energy to our customers in Northern Illinois. And we know how important electricity is in the day-to-day uh, goings of, of everyone, whether you're in a home or, or, or in your office. Uh, that's number one. Number two, we really worked hard to make sure that those who are having a hard time paying their bills, you know, there's inflation yes. right now, there's supply chain issues, yes. and, and we want to be focused in helping customers who are having a little bit of a hard time in paying their bills and we have a multitude of programs in partnership with the state to do so. So those are the two things that I'm most proud of 
uh, here uh, as we as we end this uh, 2022 year. Now, as you look back, as we I mean, I think we're kind of coming out of the covid time. We can't absolutely be sure. But were there any things that you noticed um, running ComEd that were uh, particularly interesting to you um, about how people used energy during COVID? I'm thinking of people, you know, in home offices and maybe someone with a home office wanted to take advantage of one of the ComEd programs. And so they changed their work schedule a little. So they were running their computer things off peak or I, I don't even know what you might have noticed. Is there something that sprang out at you as the as the time was going by where you thought, oh, well, we're going to have to pay attention to this? Yeah. Well, in general, in general, during COVID, energy usage in homes increased because people were working from home mm-hmm. and kids were doing school online from home. Yeah, that has subsided a little bit. Now it's starting to go back to the normal energy usage patterns. But, uh, you know, those are the things that we're watching all the time because we, we think that this uh, hybrid work environment will be the same and therefore usage patterns will be different but the good thing is that technology is really evolving like electric vehicles the use of renewable energy because everyone wants to be part in addressing the climate crisis so we're excited about all this new technologies and the role of the grid to enable more renewable clean energy electric vehicles and really to start decarbonizing every sector of the economy and to address the climate crisis. Yeah, you had mentioned, you just mentioned decarbonizing, which is the the new strategy, I guess, for for lack of a better term, for the pretty much for everybody in the in, in the um, what, what the global north. Um, so are there any particular tools or innovations or technology that's coming down the pike that you can share with us that you think hold a special promise for ComEd and the customers in, in the coming months? I believe that there will be more and more renewable energy like solar and wind. Uh, there will be technologies to heat buildings that are based on electric called heat pumps. Uh, there will be more and more electric vehicles and electric charging stations. So those are the kind of things that will uh, evolve, I think, more quickly than uh, people imagine, because there are also a lot of incentives coming from the federal uh, government through the uh, Infrastructure Investment Jobs Act and the Inflation Reduction Act. Ah, yes, that was uh, we were talking about that a little bit earlier, the money that that's out there and and how it's going to be used and directed um, by customers and by utilities. You just spoke of um, wind energy. Does ComEd have a hand in that as well? Well, in terms of generation, it's really handled in our state by private uh, generator, private developers. So the good thing in our state is we have legislation. Uh, that was passed here last September 2021 called Climate Equitable Jobs Act mm-hmm. that sets the, the pathway for us to decarbonize and address the climate crisis while paying attention to equity and building jobs and local economic development. Very cool. And, and speaking of local economic development are you, and jobs, are you active in any kind of uh, training programs for people that would that would then be part of your organization? Absolutely. Comment. We, we're, 
we're really leaning in and and increasing our workforce development and job development programs because we need to build the workers, uh, the clean energy workers of the future. Can you speak a little uh, bit more about that? What do those programs look like? Who's going into them? Yeah. So just for ComEd, we are doing a lot of training to uh, build our line workers. And we have our own training center uh, centers uh, here in uh, northern Illinois. We work with Dawson Tech, which is Kennedy King Community College here in Chicago, to, to train new workers. We have our own what we call Construct Infrastructure Academy, where we also uh, train both for our line worker program, but also for support functions that are needed in our business. That's exciting. Um, if you could hold on one moment, we have more questions for you in just a second. We we have to pay our light bills. So hold on a second. Um, and you have been listening to Gil Quinones. He is the CEO of ComEd, and we'll hear more from him in a moment on WCPT. Because facts matter. You're listening to WCPT 820. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. We are expecting Joan to be back next week. I'm Tori Ryder sitting in for Joan. A couple quick thank yous because they make me completely not fall, not fall completely apart. Lady B, Julia Shu, um, and also uh, Paul and Matt, uh, I think I covered, and Mark. That's the reason I can... They can founder my way through the, through Joan's show, which she runs with such ease and acumen. Joining me is um, somebody you don't get a chance to talk to every day. It's a, kind of a big honor. Uh, this segment is brought to you uh, by ComEd, this segment of Live, Local, and Progressive. And so joining us again, Gil Quinones, uh, who is the CEO there. And I was just reviewing a couple of the fact pages, Mr. Quinones, and it was really yeah. kind of interesting to see how much money some of these ener- energy-saving uh, plans had um had saved for their consumers. Um, the the cost I was looking at uh, was it, it said that the environmental equivalent of some of the savings of programs we put in place uh, was five to four million fewer cars from the road, fifty five billion pounds of carbon that wasn't being emitted, and savings to customers in in the thousands of dollars. How I mean, how do you how do you do that? Well, you know, you, energy efficiency really is one of the, the secret weapons in managing energy costs. We've been doing energy efficiency for the past decade or so, and to date, these offerings help customers save more than $7 billion on their energy bill. So from 2008 to the present, so I guess- average customer... Oh, I'm yeah. I'm sorry. I guess I know what it looks like when consumers try to save energy. I mean, we, as we've discussed, we we choose when we use our appliances. We make sure we turn things off. We buy more efficient appliances. But there at ComEd, are you also implementing um, energy saving, uh, energy savings in terms of how you generate and and move the electricity around the grid? I guess that's what I'm trying to ask you. Yes. Yeah. So. We, we do not generate uh, electricity. Those are power plants and generation plants that are really owned by private entities in Illinois after deregulation. But we do. 
we install what's called voltage optimization devices in our grid and other smart grid devices. And by doing so, we reduce the losses as we deliver and transmit those electricities to homes and businesses. Absolutely. And uh, they, they save a lot of money uh, for everyone because everyone is connected to the grid. Well, I'm so glad I asked that ignorant question because, A, I don't know who owns what. But, B, I mean, it's nice to know that not only am, uh, are we, the customers, trying to do the right thing and conserve, but that our utility is also um, is doing the very same thing. If you had one thing you wanted to make sure that ComEd's customers know as the year rounds out, what, what would that be? Well, if there's one thing, is rest assured that we will be there. If there are any storms coming, uh, that we will respond to those storms safely, but as quickly as possible, because we understand how important electricity is uh, to uh, to everyone. And so we're on it. If if if. If there's an issue out there, we are on it. Well, I said I, it was the last question, but now you just gave me another one because so I guess now I'm a liar. Um, if our power goes out, what's the best thing for us to do? Should we run around the house turning everything off? What is there anything we can do to be helpful in the rare event that a storm knocks us out? Yeah, well, first and foremost, stay away from those downed wires if you see downed wires. And number two, either go to our website or the 800 number indicated on the website and call uh, call our offices uh, if you have an outage, and we will respond very, very quickly. Great. Thank you so much for spending time with us. I really appreciate it. And I think that all the rest of us who like our lights to go on when we turn the switch appreciate it, too. That was Gil Quinones. He is the CEO of ComEd. This segment of Live Local and Progressive was brought to you by ComEd. I'm Tori Ryder. Joan will be back next week. Not sure yet the date. Thanks to all of you for being part of everything today. And y'all make me so welcome. I just love coming in to visit when, when Joan can't be here. We are Chicago's Progressive Talk, and you will be joining Joan again next week.